Welcome to Standout, where you're going to hear from some exceptional entrepreneurs. You'll learn what steps they took to get them where they are and what you can do to make your mark. I'm your host, Cheryl Tan, with CherylTanMedia.com. You can find the show notes at CherylTanMedia.com forward slash podcast. Want to connect on Twitter? You can find me there at Cheryl Tan. Here's a question for you. Why did you go into business for yourself? Was it for the chance to be in charge, to create your own path, to find the intersection of what you love to do with a way to make money doing it? Maybe you're nodding your head right now. Yes, definitely, all three. It's safe to say that our next guest felt that way, and he will tell you he feels incredibly fortunate now to be doing what he loves in an industry he is passionate about. But Aaron Montgomery will also tell you it's not an easy journey, that some parts of growing a successful business still keep him up at night. He, alongside partners Michael Bohr and Will Boland, have grown Carlots, a consignment store for cars headquartered in Richmond, Virginia, to six locations in two states. How did Carlots get its start, and where is it headed? Listen to this standout interview. Hello and welcome to Standout. Thanks so much for joining us, Aaron Montgomery, the co-founder and COO of Carlots. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Really excited about this. And I'm excited to hear about the growth of Carlots, which started in 2011. And we definitely want to talk about how that started, but has grown to, am I right, six locations now in the Mid-Atlantic? That's correct. Just opened our sixth in Charlotte, North Carolina about three or four weeks ago. Okay. So let's go backtrack a little bit, Aaron, and talk about how you started, how the concept came about, and how it's grown. Sure. Well, all the way back in 2010, uh, options were a little bit different than they are now. So if someone had a used car that they wanted to sell, they basically had two things they could go and do. They could take it to their dealer and probably get an offer that was far less than what they had hoped for but they'd get the check pretty quickly. Or they could take a bit more time and try to sell it on their own and get the money that they thought the car was worth, but spend a lot of time and effort and, and maybe take some risk along the way. So the whole theory of our business was what if we could eliminate that trade-off between convenience and value and provide people a way that they could list their vehicles with us and we would sell them for them to get them more of that value that they had hoped for without investing a lot of the time. And the happy coincidence is that on the buying side, the same problem was there as well. Buyers went to go buy cars and they had the same options, pay more than they thought the car was worth or spend their Saturdays combing through Craigslist or, uh, or uh, automotive classifieds trying to find a better deal. So this deal worked for them as well. So ultimately, the whole business was about helping sellers get more money for their car and helping buyers get more, more car for their money. I think when you ask an average driver about the process for buying a car, you'll probably get a reaction similar to kind of like going to the dentist, right? Like, I, I don't want to do it. And so you took that on its head. You said, I'm going to change the dynamic of selling and then, of course, buying a car. And I know you've got experience with cars selling. So talk about how this played into how you were able to bring your experience as a teenager into a business that you started up. Well, I grew up in Detroit, Michigan, uh, so selling cars there is, is, uh, is a pretty normal thing. So being in the car business, it, it kind of gets into your blood pretty quickly. But what was unique about me is that I really wanted to make a career out of this. So even after leaving Detroit and going on to college and later business school, I really saw an opportunity in the industry 
that I thought I could make a difference. And, and quite frankly, at the time, it wasn't that I had a grand idea around how I could change a, a service model or even anything is, is, is out there as consignment would have been at the time. But it really was just me thinking at least at a minimum, I could make a better service experience than what people observe. All the pain, all the fear, all the trepidation that people had about going to a car dealer just seemed unnecessary. So I thought at a minimum, I felt like I could make it a kinder, gentler type of experience for people because it's, a, it's an important decision that they're making. It's very expensive and it just seemed a shame that they would hate it so much. So that certainly informed my thinking going back. And, and, and you know, when I look back at the experiences that I had and how I was trained, how I dealt with customers, the reputations that the dealers that I had and so on, certainly informed my thinking on how we could, we could build this business model. So when the opportunity presented itself, it seemed like a no brainer. Here's an opportunity to not only change, as you said, tilt the model on its head, but also bring back some of that sensitivity to how can we make this service better and this experience better at the same time. So you were living in Richmond at the time, or is that how it all happened? How the first uh, dealership that you opened, and actually you probably don't call it dealerships, but <laughs> your first car lot. <laughs> I'll let that one slide. <laughs> I know, sorry about <laughs> that. <laughs> the first one was in, in Midlothian in, in the Richmond area. So how did that come about? That piece of property, that relationship, and let's talk about funding too, how that happened from you and your partners. Was it right out of school? Well, so my partners and I, we, we didn't go to school at the same time, but we all went to the same school. And, uh, and we were lucky in that that school has a really robust network and it's easy to connect with one another. So my partner, uh, Mike, who actually did live here at the time, our CEO, uh, initially had this idea of wouldn't it be cool if we could consign cars? And he reached out to a friend of mine from business school and said, hey, I know exactly the guy you should talk to. There's this weird guy who's been selling cars since he was 17 and really thinks he can make a, a go of this. And Mike had known my other partner, Will, from another uh, uh, job that he had had. And, and so when the three of us came together, it was around this, this problem. How could we pull this off? What types of resources would it take? And, and how do we get this going? So I, I was a consultant in Chicago. I was working there uh, for a strategy firm. And, and this idea, as I said, it, it just it resonated so much with me, given my background, that it seemed a no brainer. And, and the same idea from my partner, Will, who relocated back home from Raleigh, where he lived at the time. But then, you know, in the beginning, it really was just that it was this idea uh, that that seemed to make sense on paper. Uh, it begged a lot of questions like, hey, if this is so cool, how come nobody's doing it? Um, you know, dealers aren't by, by definition, the successful ones, at least. This is not a low capital, low tech business. I mean, they're pretty competitive. So what would they do if you opened one? Um, how do you get one off the ground? You know, do you know enough about both sides of the market to really pull it off? So the initial push was how can we build a prototype store to answer some of those basic questions in such a way that our investors could be comfortable that this is a prudent investment and the minimum viable product. The three of us are going to run it. We're going to get all the feedback from the customers. We're going to get all the market data. And we're going to test these hypotheses and see how it works out. So that initial capital raise was small. It was about half a million dollars. We were very fortunate to find uh, a, a, a Lotus dealership uh, that had been uh, that had been sold off and was now a vacant property on a, on a vacant on a on a pretty busy auto mile. So we were able to take over that property. Our our costs were obviously low since it was three of us running it. Uh, <laughs> Marketing at the time was a few Facebook posts and a call to our friends and family. So, so it was really about getting in there and really mixing it up. And that was important to get back to your question around raising money. For that first stage, hey, great idea, love the team, love the concept. But 
maybe just a little bit more due diligence around the idea before we go out and, and throw millions of dollars at this. And that's what that first raise was about, is getting people comfortable that this concept had legs. So many questions I have. Okay, so I have to mention it's Harvard that the Correct. three of you went to. So that's it's the fun. network that you're talking about. You, It sounds like the three of you probably had some pretty decent jobs, probably. And so to take that leap from what could have been a pretty comfortable lifestyle to something that is not a guarantee, uh, how did you convince everyone in your group to do that? Or was that just something that all of you learned when you were in business school or you know, had in the beginning? That's a great question. I think you'd find that most uh, of, of my classmates, and, and a lot of them do obviously go off to find to found new businesses as they go, but typically it's a bit later in their careers where they feel like they're comfortable in taking the leap. We were a little bit ahead of that curve, uh, frankly, uh, where you know this was probably a bit more, a bit earlier than most people would, would have taken the leap. Uh, and, and for other folks who start you know, right out of college, probably a bit later. So we were right in that middle sweet spot where it, it was just about to get really sticky, uh, where you could easily tell you convince yourself that it made more sense to stay than to go. Right. But it was also just early enough that you could easily convince yourself that why not try now because I could always go back. And I think that that's the mindset that we were in was, you know, right now we know our worst case is we could go back and be, I was a consultant, as I said, my partners were investment bankers. Uh, my, my, my partner, Will, had a, a really cool career going with another startup. But in his mind, it was like, I'd like to own my own startup partner, Mike, certainly wanted to build something of his own. And for me, the opportunity to do something that was right in my wheelhouse industry-wise, as well as to build my own company, was just too much to pass up. My greatest fear, honestly, was seeing these guys on the cover of Fast Company in two or three years and having to tell all my friends I could have done that, you know, and being that guy for the rest of my life. Right. So that alone was enough for me to right. take the leap. And, and I think that was the mindset. But but it's not for everybody. Um, I think, you know, we were obviously the double edged sword of that was we had comfortable jobs, but, but we could get comfortable jobs if we needed to. Again, I think the real risk was just uh, was really just more of a mindset. Are you going to go all in mm -hmm. or are you going to go in halfway? And I think that was the, the more important step was deciding to move down, run the store, commit to this, not try to straddle both careers and really go all in. Well, that forced you certainly to focus. And so I want to go back to the venture capital funding. So you're, you have, I imagine, a really great business plan. You have all these ideas, but you really need capital to get started with your store. I mean, that's with the, the plan you have had, you needed to have that. Um, how did you prepare for that ask in front of all of these business people? Because I'm pretty sure you couldn't go to the bank. I've talked with bankers who say they don't really want ideas. <laughs> they need hard numbers. So you went into a room full of business people with your idea. How did you prepare and how could have you prepared more? Although it looks like you did pretty well <laughs> that first time. <laughs> well, you know, that, that first pass, honestly, is really about just dogged determination more than anything. I mean, this isn't just go ask 10 people and, and, and maybe half of them give you a check. This, there could be hundreds of meetings before you get what you need. And there could be, and there, there are far more no's than yeses, obviously, in those cases. So, you know, uh, it's not just a matter of getting your ducks in a row and then seeing if they float. I mean, you really got to be, uh, you got to persevere and you got to be very persistent. But I think in advance of all that, to answer your question, a big piece was trying to answer those questions in, in advance, or at least offer some hypotheses on how we thought this business would work. And to do that, you've got to show a good bit of homework. So there's basic things like, can you size the market? So if this thing works out and you guys open in Richmond, what's the upside look like? You know, and if we said, yeah, we could sell 100,000 cars a year 
and all of Richmond sells 75,000, then clearly our math isn't right. You know, so that's a question you could anticipate, you can think about. You know that this is CarMax's backyard, so what's that going to look like? You can think about that and anticipate that. Right. What's a good place to locate, so on and so forth. You can anticipate the cost structure once you staff the store up. So the questions that you can answer, even if they're only hypothetical, because obviously you don't know until you do it, I think that's the big piece. Investors want to know that they've got the right folks behind the idea and that they've thought about the eventuality so that when things happen, it's not like, oh my gosh, we got to pivot, didn't, didn't see this coming. There are going to be things, obviously, that you didn't see coming. There sure. may be times that you have to pivot or change. But I, we took the initial challenge as what can we do and how much preparation can we do to give our investors confidence? So that, that first plan draft, I mean, it was long and it was lengthy. And I don't think out of any of the hundreds of meetings we ever actually produced it, but the mm -hmm. comfort it gave us in those conversations was worth every bit of time we spent on it. Phenomenal. That's really great. What a great answer. So you mentioned earlier bringing up the concern about other dealerships and other car establishments. You said it. CarMax is right there in your backyard. You have dealerships that have big budgets and a lot at stake. How do they treat you? How, how, do, they, how do you fit in with them? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, the thing about our industry is, as opposed to some others, you know, we're not exactly Uber versus cabs or Airbnb versus hotels. This is a really big ecosystem. And there are, you know, right now, uh, if you count franchise dealers, the ones that partner with manufacturers, plus all the independent dealers that you see on the road, somewhere in the neighborhood of 60, 65,000 of those. So this is more or less, you know, a, it's a pretty fragmented industry and there's a lot of players in it. So there's there's a lot of room for somebody to try something different. And I think, frankly, uh, at least the feedback that I've gotten from other dealers, you know, I, I sit on the board of the uh, Virginia Independent Auto Dealer Association and and get to connect and, and network with a lot of those folks. A lot of them are excited to see some some new ideas in this industry and they're excited to see some of the old stereotypes, excuse me, stereotypes mm -hmm. shaken and, and seeing some new ideas coming to the industry and seeing some new fresh blood in it. So there's been a lot of excitement. Now, that's not to say that everybody's pumped that, you know, <laughs> that, <laughs> that you're here. This, this is, right. If, if this ends up being a thousand stores, everybody feels the same way. <laughs> but, but for where we are, uh, you know, frankly, we've seen quite a bit of support and, and, and enthusiasm from some of the other dealers in the industry. And a lot of those are folks that we consider friends. So my other question then is to the, the buyer's point of view. I heard about you. I was uh, speaking at the College of William & Mary a few months ago, and uh, one of the directors there was talking about you, about your organization. And, and I'm so wondering, how do you get someone? And we, you know, we've talked about mm -hmm. the car buying process and how it's painful and people don't want to do it. And some people hold on to their cars because they just don't want to go into that dealership situation and haggle and um, hope that they're going to get a good deal and no, they're not. But how do you get them to do something different? Right. You know, honestly, a big part of this when we got started was it was a bit of a Trojan horse in the beginning. In the beginning, it, did, it didn't look that different. It was more, can I get you, if you, if you want to buy a car, you went on to autotrader or cars.com or Craigslist or wherever you went and you saw one listed at car lots and you came in because you liked the way it was priced, hmm. you thought it was merchandised professionally, when you called in, you got a professional greeting. And when you came to come and shop, you got greeted by a professional staff that was comforting and, and more relaxed and non-commissioned and so on and so forth. And it wasn't until you bought the car in some cases that you noticed that, hey, all these cars have license plates on them. Why is that? Because it really didn't matter to you as a buyer. You came in for price, service, quality, everything else, and you were happy with the experience. 
Now, over time, as the business grows and you get that repeat and referral business, uh, you know, it, it's it's a it's a big part of, of of the story that we tell, and that's the story that we want to tell. Obviously, this is something that's different. But in the beginning, that what was more important was nailing the service experience and getting it right, because it was less about going out and saying, "Hey, try this new shiny thing." It was try this thing because it's better and because you'll have a better experience. And oh, by the way, it's different. Hmm. Um, so, you know, as we grow, I think it'll be uh, hopefully easier to change uh, some 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 habits and and the way that people think about shopping. Frankly, it's a bit harder on the seller side as you go into a new market where something like this is is totally different to, to folks. But that's why, you know, as you build your, your, your success and you build your track story, your track record, you can start to educate people on that and you can point back to your past successes and, and hopefully right. bring them along that way. It seems like growth is very quick. I don't really know your industry that well, but what, five years in business and six locations uh, in different states so it seems like growth is pretty quick. What are some of the challenges related to growing a business like this? Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting, and I, I certainly appreciate your perspective, and, and thank you for that. It's, on, on the one hand, when you look at a business, uh, let's say a, a tech-based business that can scale, you know, 10, 20, 100x, you know, mm. in a matter of months, mm -hmm. uh, the brick-and-mortar challenge is just different. Yes. So, yeah, in the grand scheme, it'd be it'd – be, uh, pretty uncommon for a traditional dealer to branch out to six locations in five years. But relative to the startup scene, you know, that's that's not that that's not that fast. So so it's it's really getting comfortable with the challenges that your unique industry has. And, and I'll tell you what, what our challenges have been is is, uh, you know, when you build that quality product that we talked about in, in that first store, where you take the small raise and, and my partners and I build that business and then you go ahead and cut and paste that into two. Well, now you got to make sure that you're doing that same thing in two places. But luckily, they're right across the bridge, so no big deal. But then you do it a third time in Chesapeake and a fourth time in Virginia Beach. And then you, you know, so as you do that, the faster you clone, the faster you, you go through that mitosis, if you will, then the more important it is to have those controls in place to make sure that everyone's getting that quality experience. And if you don't do that, then the 15th, the 20th store is a copy of a copy of a copy. And it's no longer that thing that used to be cool and exciting. And that, to me, is probably the biggest thing that keeps me awake at night is how do you maintain that control? Right. And I don't mean the iron-fisted control of everything has to be ka-chunk, ka-chunk, ka-chunk. I mean, how do you maintain that consistent outlook of all the teammates and everybody being tied to that same vision that got us started and excited about this five years ago? So I think that's, that's an important challenge that's different for brick-and-mortar businesses than, than is for uh, you know, other types of businesses. Absolutely. But then it means attracting the right type of person to help you carry out that vision for store 20 as store two. Right. And I'll, and I'll tell you, that the, and, and that's an important point. And, and one of the differences, though, is, you know, I'll, I'll meet with folks that uh, HR professionals and things like that, and they'll talk about the importance of getting that higher right. But, you know, if you're in, if you're in an office of five or seven hundred people, you can walk around and see. I don't feel the morale. This person doesn't seem to fit in. But, you know, if you're talking, we could have the same five or seven hundred people, but they can be in 25 or 50 locations. And that's a different challenge. That's mm -hmm. that's much more about having uh, reliable systems, you know, making sure you've got the right managers in place, that you've got solid training, that people feel like they're close to the sun and they're really tied to the vision. But but that's that's different. And and that's been a unique challenge, I think, for most of us who can't come from different types of backgrounds where you can walk around and see your team and, and, and basically take in everything as it happens. Yeah. Well, what's next then for Carlots as you continue to grow? And it sounds like you you're 
It may keep you up at night, but you're perfecting your systems <laughs> for right. growth. What's right. next? I mean, right now it's still just on the East Coast. Um, I saw you have a, a bike shop. Did I did I get that correct? So yeah. one uh, is probably focused just on bikes, motorcycles, or bicycles. That's all motorcycles. All you know. motorcycles. So what's next for the company, the growth vision? Yeah, you know, so we're excited about that expansion. That's our first uh, new vertical motorcycles. And that was really nice. exciting because, you know, it seemed like that industry uh, had the same challenges as, as the traditional passenger car industry and in, in that people had the same two options when they wanted to sell their bikes and it seemed inefficient and we were able to step right in. And it didn't take us very long to ramp up to some pretty serious volume in that business, which I think demonstrated the fact that there was uh, some, 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 certainly some gaps there that we could help to fill. But as we think broader beyond that, I certainly think, uh, you know, continuing uh, the expansion that we've seen, we'd like to grow in the footprints that we're in. You know, certainly there's more in North Carolina than just Charlotte. Uh, and certainly there's more to the southeast than just Virginia and North Carolina. So I think there's a lot more that we can do where we are. But I think there's also lots of opportunities beyond that. I, you know, we believe that this is a, a business that can scale nationally. Mm -hmm. and, and we think that that's, that's the path that we'd like to pursue. Uh, so as the opportunities present themselves, I think we'd be open to, to lots of different ways to do that. But I think you can, you can see even where we are right now, there's lots of potential to, to keep growing at the pace that we've been going. That's pretty exciting. It definitely is exciting. So yeah. we have, have a lot of entrepreneurs, different types of business owners who listen and watch the, watch the show, but they all are focused on growing their businesses. So I, I just have to ask, what kinds of um, habits do you have? Uh, things that you do every day, maybe, or every week that help you figure out your road to success or help you get to the next level? I think me personally, you know, as, as you, uh, you joked about not sleeping at night, but it's, it's a big deal, right? It's like, how do you get, <laughs> but, but you know, how do you prioritize things so that you can sleep at night? Right. So, yeah. so it's, you know, I think the big piece for me is setting aside a plan once a week, you know, once a day, so that you're focused on the most important things. Because as an entrepreneur, you could easily get bogged down yeah. into a bunch of urgent things and some things that aren't so urgent that aren't at all gonna help you get to where you need to be. Mm -hmm. So I think that daily or weekly reflection on have I made progress on the high level things is key. So one question that I ask myself and I often ask my team whenever we're faced with a new problem is what's the one thing that we could do that would make this thing go away or become a lot easier right now? And if anybody's got some ideas, let's work on that. But if it's just a bunch of other things that we're going to do, well, oh, we can check this report. We can go back to this. We can do this, this and that. Then that's not the thing. But let's try to find the one thing so we can cut this down and bury it and always ask ourselves that question. So so that for me is it. And, and, and you know, tying that back to that growth issue is, you know, what's the one thing that we can do? And, and, and like you said, if we can have a solid recruitment plan, if we can have a solid training plan. That's one thing that we can focus on. So if there's one thing I'm going to do every day, it's make sure that that's being done well. Uh, and, and hopefully and, and, and probably that's in lieu of a lot of other smaller things that I could be doing, but I'm not going to do so that I could focus on that. Right. And certainly that's a, a huge goal and something that you can't not address. I thank you so much for your time, for sharing your wisdom with us. And before we go, one last question would be, uh, what makes you a standout? Yeah. I am probably the only person that I know that was this excited about selling cars. <laughs> but I think what, I think what makes me or anyone to stand out is when you're able to marry that passion for what you do, uh, you know, with an aptitude for it. So, uh, you know, I, my, my hope and prayer for anybody that does anything would be that they can find that and, and find the intersection because it really makes work a lot easier and a lot more fun. Aaron Montgomery, thanks so much for your time. We really appreciate it.
Thanks, Cheryl. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Standout. I love what Aaron said about nailing the customer service experience. No matter how large Carlotts becomes or how far-reaching the company's impact will be, at the very core of this business is the focus on providing the best experience to people who walk in the door. Interested in other episodes of the Standout Podcast? They're all together in one place at CherylTanMedia.com forward slash podcast. If you'd like to be reminded when new Standout episodes come out, you can sign up for my newsletter at CherylTanMedia.com. Until next time, thanks so much for joining me. I'm Cheryl Tan.